Mom, Dad, you should shop Amazon for back to school and save some money. See, I'm currently obsessed with superheroes and need all the superhero stuff. Superhero lunchbox, superhero backpack. But next year, it'll be something else. Maybe dinosaurs? I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. But I can tell you not to spend a fortune and shop low prices for school on Amazon. Okay, good chat. Amazon. Spend less, smile more. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. We uh, found out that a law that we have been working on, when I say we, the bigger intermediary community, been working for, what, 16 years um, to get passed to clarify the roles of brokers and intermediaries in M&A transactions. It's called the Small Business Mergers, Acquisitions, Sales, and Brokerage Simplification Act, and it just got passed at the end of the year. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And we are here at the deal board with a big update. We moved up this show because we got a Christmas present in the intermediary world. Right, Jessica? Yeah, and this is like this is a little nerdy, like business brokerage intermediary news, but it's it's very important for the entire small business market. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But we uh, found out that a law that we have been working on it. When I say we, the bigger intermediary community, been working for what sixteen years um, to get passed to clarify the roles of brokers and intermediaries in M and A transactions. It's called the Small Business Mergers, Acquisitions, Sales, and Brokerage Simplification Act, and it just got passed at the end of the year. Yeah, and which simply clarified the ability for business brokers and intermediaries to sell businesses, privately held businesses, and sell the stock of those businesses with some guardrails and with some caps and rules uh, that we're going to talk about right now with the two experts. And the two experts are our own Mike Ertle. I think we've had him on the show before, but Mike Ertle taught, and he has been working on this again for 16 years, longer than he's been working at Transworld. And we are so happy to have Mike on the show. And literally, they should build a statue of him because he has really been the champion of this, as well as others, which we will talk about as well. But our other guest is Shane, right? Yeah, Shane Hansen, who is really been integral in um, the, the the legal side of this and helping get the bill written and helping understand it. And uh, again, with a huge team um, behind the two of them, but they gave, we've like, what, a 45 or 50 minute interview just of a very, I wouldn't even say in depth, but a very um, like clarifying overview of what the bill means, um, how it impacts not just business brokers and intermediaries, but the small business community at large. Yeah, Shane being with Warner Norcross Judd for a lawyer, he's clear. I mean, sometimes you talk to lawyers and they're talking, you know, legal language. And I think Shane does a great job of breaking it down and talking exactly what happens. And it's a little bit of legalese uh, and it's a little somewhat um, complicated to understand. But I think if you're a small business owner and if you are an intermediary intermediary or an accountant, or a lawyer, or anybody that deals with small businesses when they transition, this is great. Yeah. And I, I think why this is important to the community at large is this really it started and we go into the history of, of what's been happening in the past and how it became a law, right? Because it was a practice that was basically said, okay, the SEC's taken no action on this, but now it's become a law. But why it's important to everyone is this is really what powers the main street market, the M&A market, it's what allows small businesses and medium businesses to be sold um, and transacted. So it's a great informational episode. I know Andy and I have been getting a lot of questions about this bill in the last three weeks. So we wanted to really record this and push it up into our schedule. And we hope you enjoy it. Yeah, let's get right to it. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for listing of the week. 
Hey, welcome back, everybody. It is Listing the Week, and I have Chip Redman here from Transvol Business Advisors of Central Florida. And we have another great deal, lots of good listings here, and this one's a good one. Yeah, so it's an embroidery shop. They're doing custom uh, gift baskets. They're doing embroidered shirts like our Transworld one. Uh, they have a single-head machine, double-head machine, and a six-head machine, along with some um, you know, other things for making shirts and hats. So it's a really cool little starter business for somebody. Yeah, we, we need a lot of new shirts because we have the old logos on, and we got new logos. Switch for, yeah, you've got my little pin, old logo, new logo on the same one. So help me out. So it's a good deal. How much did you say again? So we were at 175. We dropped down to 140. It's 90,000 in equipment and it's making 50,000. Wow. So. Good deal. Great business to grow, uh, especially down here in Florida. Population keeps growing. You can go out there and get business. Perfect time for the holidays. Start doing some gift baskets. There you go. All right. What's the best way to get in touch with you? Chris Redmond at SeaWorld.com and 321-299-6867. All right. Come get it. Good listing. Hey, welcome back, everybody, and welcome to the Deal Board. Very special, a special, special episode today because we just got a huge Christmas present at the end of last year. We finally, after many, many years, passed a bill that will help us in clarifying stock sale compliance issues that we had with the um, sale of an asset sale, if it turned into a stock sale, or perhaps even an asset sale, if there was a promissory note involved. And we have two of the people online today that were so instrumental in making this happen, Jessica. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and we're so thankful for having both of you here. Mike, Shane, why don't we just kick off? Mike, can you just give a brief intro about who you are and what you do? And then Shane will ask you to do the same thing. Uh, my name is Mike Ertle. I'm a managing director with Transworld's M&A division. I've been doing M&A transactions for about 20 years. And uh, since about 2006, I've been co-chair of the Campaign for Clarity, which is how Shane and I became unindicted co-conspirators. <laughs> well, and I'm Shane Hansen. I'm a securities lawyer of 40 years practicing, uh, focusing primarily on the regulation of broker-dealers investment advisors, um, securities regulation generally, and um, was very much involved from a very early stage. Um, Mike can talk about how the uh, American Bar Association published a uh, literally a report in 2005 about private placement broker-dealers that kind of was the inspiration for the national associations and getting behind this effort. And I actually did a lot of the legal research for the uh, the cases that were covered in that ABA report, starting way back in 2003 and four, leading up to the report in 2005. Yeah, and I've been involved just about that whole time as well. And it's we've gone through a lot, and there's no bigger champion of this than Mike Ertle. And Mike, even by and this was even predated you coming on board at Transworld. And uh, yeah. I think one what one of the stipulations was that if you came aboard Transworld, we would continue to support this effort. So, number one, congratulations to both of you, and especially Mike. So, Mike, give us a little bit of background of you know where we were. Um trying to get the SEC to change laws and then we decided to change the rules and then we decided to go with the legislative approach. Sure. Well, uh, early on, uh, the Alliance of M&A Advisors, which is one of uh, three or four national organizations of business brokers and M&A advisors, uh, was in researching whether they should form their own broker dealer in order to accommodate their, their members who were doing stock sales or uh, M&A transactions that had a, a securities component. And uh, in 2006, Faith Kolish, one of the ABA uh, uh, task force members who'd written the letter to the, uh, written the report and, and then the response to the SEC appeared at an AMAA conference. And one of her handouts was uh, their response to the SEC saying, we read your report. We understand that, that You'd like to see some change in the law. What do you recommend? And so about 
80% of the letter was, we think there needs to be a broker-dealer light for people who are raising capital. And the closing paragraph was, a case could be made for a limited exemption for people who hold the securities and they're not in the business of selling securities. And, and uh, they're already regulated by many of the states uh, through the real estate law. So that that uh, led to a meeting of the leading associations and what should we do about this? And at the time, uh, uh, IBBA had engaged an attorney and was working on a no-action letter that was issued in November of 06, which was the CBI no-action letter. And initially, it was, it was touted as the answer to the problem. But the CBI no-action letter really only applied if you sold 100% of the shares and if the intermediary who was charging this large fee of his clients backs completely away from the transaction and didn't advise on valuation or deal structure, uh, they just uh, could collect a fee without being prosecuted by the SEC. And and the industry recognized that that really didn't cover didn't cover the waterfront. So we started what became known as the Campaign for Clarity. All of the leading national associations have contributed mightily. I get more credit than I deserve because it wouldn't have happened without the financial support and the moral support of the various national and regional associations. Uh, and I was really just the scribe. And, and, and that really that the assistant scribe, Shane was the scribe uh, who wrote, who wrote the bell and, and uh, much of the, much of the language. Uh, that effort initially started with the SEC. Our belief was this is fairly straightforward and the uh, regulators are pretty much not opposed to it. This should just take uh, a rule by the SEC that they weren't going to prosecute M&A brokers and business brokers if they did, if they met certain conditions. And so we met with the SEC from 2006 to 2012, and they were very encouraging. But finally, on one of their, uh, you, you can't get into the, and out of the SEC building without being escorted. And our escort leading us out of the building of our last meeting with them was, was saying, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but we're never going to get around to doing anything about this, even though we think it's a worthy cause. We just don't have enough lawyers and enough resources to assign to this with everything else we owe the Senate and the Congress on Dodd-Frank and Sarbanes-Oxley and crowdfunding was coming. We're just never going to get to it. If you have a friend in Congress, you might have more luck getting a bill passed than you're ever going to have uh, getting the SEC to, mo to promulgate a rule. So fortunately, uh, we knew of uh, Hugh Makins and Shane Hansen. And uh, fortunately, Shane knew Congressman Bill Heisinger out of Michigan, and that got us started in about 2012. Shane appeared before the House Financial Service Committee and testified. I appeared and testified in 2014. They, they passed the first version of this bill unanimously in the, in the House, and it went to the Senate, and it was immediately introduced the day it passed in the Senate, it passed in the House and languished there for the rest of the term. Never, they never took any action on it. That happened actually two more times before finally, in this session of Congress, Senator Kennedy managed to get uh, our bill attached to the omnibus appropriations bill. And uh, they, they passed that bill so the government wouldn't shut down. Uh, but it's taken us literally 16 years. One milestone that I that I skipped over was in in uh, two weeks after our first bill passed the House unanimously, the SEC issued what has become known as the SEC M&A broker rule or uh, no action letter, which basically said, uh, so long as the intermediary doesn't hold the funds, doesn't hold the securities, doesn't have the power to bind the parties, is not raising capital from passive investors. Um, couple of other provisions. Uh, we're not going to recommend enforcement if they simply don't have, have a real estate or they don't have a securities license. And that kind of set the stage for uh, subsequent discussions with Congress. And it, it paved the way for the uh, North American Security Administrators, which is all of the state administrators, to begin changing state law to conform with the no action letter and then uh, a model state rule that NASA 
ratified. Uh, so now we have 20 states that have some exemption. And uh, we have a federal exemption. And so it's it's uh, been a long time coming, but it's fully arrived. I mean, just hearing the whole story, Mike, from the beginning, um, one, I want to thank you and the, the whole team at Beef again, because the amount of persistence, effort, um, and resources you guys put into this for clarity, right? Because from un unraveling everything that you said, basically, it was just complicated before, right? And you needed a lawyer to understand um, you know, what, what the, the rules were for different transactions and sizes and things like that. But it's been a very long road. Um, you know, thankfully you had, I'm sure you're very grateful for that escort in the SEC that told you what you weren't supposed to know on the way out the door. Um, but outside of, outside of this bill in and of itself, what's been interesting for me is just to watch the whole process. You know, everybody's been in agreement with this bill the entire time. It just took 16 years for something to get done. So thank you for the, your persistence on that. Yeah, and there there are some other notable people, as uh, Mike said, uh, Mike Nall from the AMNAA, from the Alliance of Mergers and Acquisitions, literally bankrolled this whole thing to begin with. Uh, we eventually uh, tried to help him out on several levels and, and still doing so. And then the MA source and the IBBA. And then there's a bunch of state organizations that also helped. And I do have to say a special shout out to Jeff Taylor, who passed away during this process. Uh, he was yeah. a, a lobbyist uh, who certainly helped get this in the doors. I can remember uh, him calling us up and he's spending uh, hours upon hours getting the copy of our bill on every single legislator's desk. Um, and I guess that's what it takes. You literally have to walk around. But uh, Shane, um, you know, we'll flip it to you now that this is passed and we know we have to some work with the states. What does this mean? Yeah, sure. And and just to segue in there, um, literally the day the bill dropped in the House, it was introduced by by Congressman Heisinger with a co-sponsor, Brian Higgins from upstate New York, a Democrat. And uh, literally the day it dropped, I delivered a copy of the bill to the SEC staff. We were having a meeting that day around the possibility of a no action letter. And at the time, the SEC was kind of hung up on, uh, as Mike said, the country business no action letter was 100%. And they were hung up at the SEC staff about going below 50%. And and so the the legislation was handy to say no we're we started out at twenty percent in the the original version of the legislation, and uh, and the uh, fast forward it's it's no accident that a lot of the definitions key terms in the SEC staff's no action letter um, basically track with the bill because the effort was to parallel track these. And similarly, um, with the states and um, the uh, the associations put on a day long session in Chicago for uh, particularly a couple of state regulators, Tanya Soloff and Denny Crawford from Illinois and Texas, respectively. And so we really had multiple tracks running because of the complexity. The federal law applies and the state laws apply. And you really. Uh, no action letters are are great to sort of get the position of the staff, but no action letters are not legally binding on anybody, not even the SEC's commission. So the legislation was really pretty important in order to change the law. It wasn't just the staff's interpretation of the law, but in fact, changing the, the law. So what is the law? I guess that's kind of the key thing here and, and what's left to do. Um, the exemption is self-executing. It's an exemption that will fit um, middle market M&A brokers exactly what they do. Uh, but, there, but it's important to understand there are some guardrails around it that were largely designed to replace a one-size-fits-all federal regulation of broker-dealers, which was mainly written around retail brokers and you know, buying and selling shares of stock with a trade order, and replacing those with something meaningful. So 
Um, key thing is that it needs to be a private company in the terms of the statute, the exemption uses the definition of an eligible um, privately held company. So the target company needs to be privately held um, so that you're not selling publicly traded securities. So that's a critically important thing. Um, and it needs to be an operating company um, or part of together an operating company and its affiliates um, so that it is not a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition corporation, a shell company, because SPACs have been on the SEC's radar as potential frauds uh, for a long time. So it's got to, can't be a public company, can't be a SPAC. But it does allow, for example, if you were to do a merger, um, quite often a buyer might form a, a wholly owned subsidiary that is technically a shell, but it's designed for tax purposes to do a triangular merger, a triangular forward or a triangular reverse merger. And so that's permissible, but it just can't be a, you know, a so-called SPAC that you know, might take a company private, turn it into a public company. Um, there are also size caps, and it's important to note that the size caps are not in the no action letter, mainly because the SEC staff um, had no economic basis. They had no data to figure out what a size cap would be. And um, uh, for the legislation, it really was a political compromise, um, widely vetted caps and metrics, um, and they are very generous in the middle market, should cover by far and away uh, the uh, substantial, way past substantial majority, should cover most. Alternate caps, the metrics are 250 million in gross revenue or $25 million in EBITDA, either or, and that's because some companies have high profits, uh, excuse me, high volume, but low profits, others just the opposite. So the metrics are designed to fit different economic circumstances. But those are the size caps. The privately owned company in, at the end of its last fiscal year, and this is unadjusted, this is actual based on the company's financial statements, uh, the fiscal year end before the M&A broker has been hired. So the idea is to have a complete year um, and to have basically the actual books and records uh, with either of those two metrics. And, and that would basically make the, uh, the target company an eligible private company. Now, um, the other important aspect here is that the buyer needs to be a buyer who will acquire control, not 100%, but the final number in the statute is a presumption of control at 25%. Um, and that would be ownership of the stock or economic interest the, in, in an LLC. It might be the right to receive capital distribution at 25%. At so that's one prong of the buyer's qualification. The other is, and it kind of follows naturally, uh, the buyer has to either directly or indirectly control the acquired target company or the assets used from that target company. Um, and, the, uh, and, the and the exemption, the statute and the no action letter had examples around what control might look like. Example, being on the board of directors, approving the budget for the uh, for the company, being an executive officer of the acquired company. Um, it's a non-exclusive list, but the concept basically is that the buyer is going to have a control position and is going to be able to actively be involved and translate that to have access to the information about the company that is being acquired, which is to distinguish that from the typical retail broker where a passive investor just gets what they get you know, out of SEC filings and they have no access rights to, to more than that. So those are a couple of 
key factors in the qualifications of the buyer. So a private equity firm would typically qualify for this and, and they can bring equity to the table, um, but they need to do it in a role where they uh, have at least 25% ownership and will directly or indirectly be able to exercise con control in the management operation of it going forward. Well, one other thing that was not in the no action letter, but is important in the context of transactions where it's not cash, there are securities being issued by the buyer to the seller. That would be true, for example, in a stock for stock merger. Um, could be where there is a significant element of debt involved. And, 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 and I would say more than just a promissory note, but, but securities that could be traded. Um, and that's the key thing to distinguish a, a promissory note that are presumed to be securities. Um, but the courts have created some exemptions if, they're, if the note's closely tied to the deal and it's not assignable. It's a cash substitute. It's not a real long term. But in any event, in, in some transactions, the buyer will issue its securities to the seller. And in that context, um, the SEC staff is negotiating this uh, and the state regulators wanted to be sure that the seller then receiving the buyer's securities has financial statements. Uh, including any CPA, um, either audit, uh, review, or compilation that goes along with it, um, that they also receive um, the management MDNA, for example, discussion of the results from the last fiscal year, and a balance sheet dated within 120 days of the offer of the securities, so uh, again, these are things that um, would typically be negotiated in a transaction because the seller is functionally becoming an investor in the buyer going forward, and they want to make sure the the buyer is credit worthy and uh, and such. And uh, and then I uh, would also add they need to get um, the buyer's summary of material loss contingencies. So. All of these things would typically be covered by the definitive agreement between the parties, but from the intermediary's point of view, you have to have a reasonable belief in each of these things. The reasonable belief that the, the buyer is going to deliver this financial information, reasonable belief that the uh, buyer is going to have 25% ownership and that the buyer is going to be actively, directly, or indirectly involved in the management going forward. And that was real important in, in the no action letter and in the legislation, that it's based on a reasonable belief, um, which you, know, you can document in the engagement letter, for example, or in the, in the non-binding expression of interest, for example ultimately in the definitive agreements. Um, and although there's no record keeping requirements in the exemption, it would behoove the intermediary to have copies of those records available to be able to prove that if anybody ever asked um, that, that the conditions in the exemption have been satisfied. So um, to that, um, let me stop there and I can, Tell, tell you a little bit more about the disqualifications and the thou shalt nots, mm -hmm. but let me see if you've got any questions around it up to this point. I think honestly, Shane, I thought that was a very clear, um, no pun intended, very clear um, <laughs> overview of of the campaign for clarity, um, and just like the the guardrails that you talked about that intermarries to be careful of. Andy, you. Yeah, it, it's clear. And I'll ask you about some of the, the, the not haves like so we could roll right into that. I know one of the big uh, not to do's for the brokers is to take possession of any of the money or escrow monies. Yes, um, 
That is uh, very important because the SEC and the states all see, you know, the handling of money as the risk of of theft and somebody walking off with the money. Um, it's a perennial problem. It's in the top 10 of the issues the SEC and, and states see. And so it is definitely the most important thou shalt not have custody, control, possession. So what does that mean for like an earnest money deposit? The answer is the M&A broker cannot hold it. But you can work with a title company, you could work with a bank, you could work with a law firm, um, with an, a bona fide escrow agent. Again, it's got to be clear that there's like an escrow agreement that, you know, doesn't leave the M&A intermediary in a control position, but in fact lays out the, the what ifs uh, that move the money if the ifs have been satisfied. So... So that's clearly um, probably the most important one. Um, others are that um, that you can't sell this target company to a group of buyers that's been formed by the intermediary. So the M&A broker can't syndicate the business, um, can't organize a group um, uh, but but basically, uh, and the reason for that is it creates conflicts of interest that the regulators become concerned about. Um, can't engage on behalf of the issuer in a public offering. That ties back to the point originally around it's got to be a privately owned company and you can't take a private company public. So uh, you cannot be engaged on behalf of the issuer. Now, there's a little flexibility there, um, so I would highlight that the public company could be a buyer, and, and it's not a public offering. The public company is simply buying the target privately owned, private, privately owned company. That's totally permissible, but you, you just can't sell a public company uh, under this uh, or sell to a, any passive investors. They, they have to be actively involved uh, in it. Then there's uh, another one that seems kind of odd. It's it's that you can't legally bind the seller or the buyer in the transaction, which which doesn't typically happen in an M and A transaction anyway. But but the explanation for that is simply this: in in the retail brokerage context, if a customer wants to buy 500 shares of uh, Google. Uh, they put a trade order in and the broker puts the order in and that binds the customer to complete the transaction. And uh, so, so you cannot um, be in a position to bind a seller or a buyer. Again, not a big deal. That just doesn't, doesn't happen. And, um, and, and maybe the other uh, condition, last condition that's important for private equity in particular or commercial banks the intermediary can't directly or indirectly provide the financing for the transaction. That, again, ties back to the notion that financing creates a set of conflicts of interest, often creates additional compensation, and, uh, and so the intermediary can't be affiliated directly or indirectly with if there's financing, and of course there almost always is, um, cannot be affiliated directly or indirectly with whoever's pro providing the financing. So an uh, important takeaway for private equity firms that have a private fund that is raised capital to make the investment and hence provide the financing, private equity firms cannot rely on this exemption because they would be providing the financing in the very same transaction. And, uh, and, and so the, um, the financing element is a, is a key imp important condition around that. Um, we, sh we should note, we should note, Shane, that, uh, that doesn't prohibit the broker from introducing the buyer to a bank that provides financing, doesn't pr prohibit the broker from introducing the buyer to a private equity group who might provide financing. It means that the broker themselves can't provide the financing. Exactly right. And, and 
the key to that, um, the, the guardrail around that is disclosure um, and, and mm -hmm. disclosure that if the, if the intermediary, the broker is going to get paid anything, a disclosure that they're going to get paid. Again, it's a conflict of interest and, uh, and disclosure will cure that. Um, and, and Mike, a good, good point about the other one here is that theoretically, the intermediary could even represent uh, sort of be a neutral intermediary, which is truer in much smaller, more Main Street kinds of transactions, maybe, where, where the intermediary is neutral. They represent in the deal both the seller and the buyer. And that is permissible in, under the exemption, as long as both parties have consented to it. Um, and you want that in writing as proof of that. But that that does allow flexibility, especially at the Main Street level where that would be more common. Mm -hmm. right. And like you said, the top chain, I mean, a, a lot of this is just general practice of how M&A transactions have been going for a, a very uh, large number of years. Mm -hmm. So no, no big surprises here. You did mention too that even though all of this is solidified, it's taking so much work to get to this point there's still a lot of work to be done, right? There is, because there is no federal preemption of state laws in this context. Um, and that is why from the beginning, we had a parallel track working with state securities regulators. There are, of course, 50 states, the Washington, uh, the District of Columbia, uh, Puerto Rico, and of course, Guam, who would want to forget Guam? They all have state securities laws, and uh, they all define a broker in the same way. And so we worked with uh, the Association of State Securities Regulators called the North American Securities Administrators Association, or NASA. I would call them the other blue sky people. <laughs> But the uh, state securities regulators um, got on board early. Um, NASA uh, developed a model state rule, creating um, a state level exemption, paralleling the federal exemption. And um, I'm very pleased to say that, that we have a total of 20 states out of that total who have specific M&A-specific exemptive relief. 12 of the states adopted the NASA rule, model rule, through uh, either law, amending their lawmaking, uh, Florida being the notable example there, um, and uh, the other 11 by rulemaking. Um, and then the remaining eight, uh, basically adopted or took no action positions. Um, and we're likely to see those no action positions in those eight states. And we can get the list around to people so they can see what states have these. Um, likely those eight states will eventually either adopt a rule or completely harmonize their no action position with uh, with the final now law federal exemption. And when I say now, actually, I mean March 29th of 2023. That's when the federal exemption becomes uh, effectively becomes law. So this this is great news. I mean, obviously, most brokers out there in the world were just continued to do business uh, and cross their fingers that if something turned into a stock sale that they they would get paid or that you know somebody wouldn't bring up a lawsuit that decided that uh, a one of the promissory notes was a security and therefore they could unwind the whole transaction. So, you know, I feel good that you know, like things that we were doing as normal course of business, you know, now we don't we we've taken that worry away. But what about like what opportunities do you? think that may open up. I, you know, I always like think about these laws when these laws happen, somebody's going to press the issue. Somebody's going to take it to the next level and test the law. So is, you know, I just got a call yesterday that somebody wanted to sell 49% uh, two partners. Somebody wants to sell and let's just say it was 50, 50, right? So somebody wanted to sell 50, 50 of their business. Now I've turned those down in the past. Cause I've always said, Hey, it's illegal for me to go out there and promote the sale of stock 
and you know and help you sell the business if you're willing to sell the whole thing and it turns into a stock sale that now seems like that's okay but is it okay to start out as a stock sale it is you can if it fits the conditions that is to say it's a qualifying el or eligible privately owned company um and the the intermediary is doesn't do the the thou shalt nots and and you comply with the conditions to the exemption um and and remember it's that you have a reasonable belief that those conditions are going to be satisfied so work that into your engagement letters so that you have a reasonable belief that the seller will you know go with those terms and conditions um you can start out as the sale of a stock transaction or even limited liability companies which are as no. you know they can be either if they have more of the attributes of a corporation meaning it's manager managed like a board and an officers uh, versus member managed that looks more like a general partnership uh, and so um if there are passive investors whether it's a corporation or an llc or some other legal format um but now the good news is you can you can do those engagements uh, right. from the get-go key there being that 25 percent presumption of control and uh and so you could definitely sell um again 25 percent. you could have four partners and and you could be selling one of the partners out uh, of that as long as they're going to have that ability after closing the the buyer is going to be able to be actively involved directly or indirectly in the management so um yeah you can start out with those transactions um and I would say the the clarity that this brings, uh, really tying directly back to the campaign for clarity, that's what this was called, is to bring some clarity around um, this regulatory regime that never fit well um, because it's the federal securities regulation of broker dealers is one size fits all. And it's really designed around brokering uh, publicly traded securities in public markets and and for sure there are regulations that apply to private companies too but it was just very ill-fitting and so now um, opportunities to for example have referral agreements with cpa firms or with lawyers or with um, wealth advisors uh, basically the sky's the limit as long as the transaction qualifies for the exemptive relief, um, you should be able to work with anyone without that person having to be registered either as or with a broker dealer. No, well, that's a the the, uh, the footnote to that is just as federal law doesn't preempt state law in securities, the securities laws don't preempt state real estate law. So there are about 15 states where business brokers need to have a real estate license in order to represent the sale or the purchase of a business for a third party. Um, those laws are, are still in effect. They're unchanged by any of this. That's a good point, Mike, too. Yeah. And I would add that maybe a reason because um, you do have in, in this uh, history here, uh, many professionals who registered with a broker dealer, so they became FINRA, took the FINRA exams uh, to become licensed with a broker dealer, FINRA being a self-regulatory organization. Um, a broker dealer is required to be mem a member of a self-regulatory organization, which for most is FINRA, uh, that are not stock exchange members. And so you have professionals who are registered with a FINRA member broker dealer. And if you're a FINRA member or you're a professional registered with a FINRA member, FINRA rules apply to you. FINRA rules don't apply if you're not registered either as or with a FINRA member firm. FINRA has no jurisdiction over anybody else. Um, but if you are registered with a FINRA firm, 
FINRA has rules that will continue to apply to both the broker-dealer and the individual professional who is registered with that broker-dealer. And to the point Mike made around the real estate um, laws, the 15 states, I think, that Mike is talking about and um, uh, the concept being that, um, that if you have uh, a registration as or with a broker-dealer, that, um, that there's an exemption from the state real estate laws, that may be a consideration why you might at least for a while need to keep you know, your licenses current until you qualify under state real estate um, laws or contractually partner with some other, another firm or individual who has those qualifications. So, um, individuals and firms that are FINRA members or uh, have associations of professionals with a FINRA member firm will absolutely want to sort through um, whether, for example, they bifurcate the broker-dealer, move the M&A work out of the broker-dealer to an affiliate that's not registered. So you have two entities that um, are involved, one M&A and the and the broker dealer continues to handle corporate finance type transactions. So there you really have to kind of sort through and think through what the ramifications are. But but the good news is we really have a lot of clarity around this. Yeah. yeah. It, Shane, you actually do bring up a good point is that um, even though you're an attorney, right, appearing on the podcast and the rest of us are not attorneys, like mm-hmm. anyone listening to this should still vet all the opportunities and options they have yes. um, by their attorneys. So that fun legal disclaimer we always have to have. <laughs> yes. And and I would give the same disclaimer because um, there's definitely devil in the details. Um, there are nuances in federal and state securities laws, and there are nuances around these all these other state level laws, and uh, and, and there are a, you know a gazillion you know variations on the theme. So what I've summarized here is very high level. It's not intended as legal advice. You really do want to talk to your your own counsel, and you really need to talk through what it is you do, how you do it, who you do it for, um, and to be sure that you can fit within the guardrails uh, of this exemption. And if you have any questions about that, we're not going to end without giving a plug to Shane, saying you could give Shane a call at Warner Norcross Judd and and hire him uh, if there's no conflict. I'm sure they'll do a conflict check, uh, which I hope to do soon. We're gonna we'll we'll do some work with you, Shane. Now that this is all over with, uh, and um, and so that's number one. Number two, if you are an intermediary and or a broker dealer and or positively affected by this i will use the works of mike ertle it would be it would it, it would be remiss for me to <laughs> not mention that we are raising capital raising money uh not in a sense like uh, selling stock but we are doing fundraising for to pay these bills uh, we've been uh we we, we have a goal of about $250,000 at our uh, 501c6 organization called the Business Intermediary Education Foundation. That's BEEF for short. And we have a website, beeffoundation.org, only one F. Uh, You could look it up. uh, And we have the ability to take donations uh, right now. Uh, The website is up. We have a $250,000 goal to pay all the bills, us and have some money in beef for us to continue this uh this campaign and i you know again i want to thank everybody that's donated in the past uh and michael did you want to add to that a little bit no i think you've covered it beautifully and uh, i'm glad the website's live uh i just got a call over the weekend somebody wanted to get us some money and and uh, I'm, i'm glad that i can refer them to the website now yes so uh i did give a donation earlier today uh, and it's working. So, uh, Good. and, uh, Thank you, we, you. yes. So we have a goal of $250,000, uh, really would appreciate everybody stepping up. There has been some matching 
funds that will be available. I know Transworld is doing a $25,000 matching fund as long as well as some of the organizations like the Business Brokers of Florida uh, and uh, California. And I know the uh, Carolina, Virginia Association is looking into it. I know the Texas Association is looking into it. And I know the IBBA is looking into it and the MA source. And I'm sure uh, that others will follow suit to uh, to help pay the bill that, uh, you know, this was an incredible effort. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I'll, add, I'll, I'll just add to that, speaking of the state and regional associations and connecting the dots to the work that still remains to be done at the state level. Um, the 30 states plus the District of Columbia, um, and if you want to include Puerto Rico and Guam, we can. Um, really, the the national, you know, federal level is done now. We need to turn to the states and those 30 to get them on board. And, and that really is working. First, the state and regional associations have the most boots on the ground, it is the political constituency directly for their legislators and their governor and the economic development agency within their state. And so from a political standpoint, all politics is local. Um, it, it, it is really incumbent upon the state and regional associations with their imprimatur of, of, of representing a significant chunk of the economic development in a state to number one, ask their regulator, you know, would you now adopt this? It's the federal laws become final. Would you, would you adopt this either by lawmaking, rulemaking, order? And, uh, and the regulators you'll find, they're state employees, um, good people, but very, very concerned about not doing something that they will get, you know, egg on their face for. So very often you're going to need to talk to the state legislature um, or, as I say, the governor and economic development agencies around um, why this is important to our state and uh, to, to kind of take the, the final batons across the remaining 30 goal lines. That's let me, let, let me just, ahead, uh, because I was personally involved in getting the Florida uh, legislature to adopt uh, the basically the NASA model state rule, uh, it was, it was compared to the frustration of working for 16 years to get the federal law amended. It took exactly one year working with the Florida legislature. We, we called the uh, the Office of Financial Regulation, and they indicated that they would be more comfortable if we got the, the law changed. I called my state senator from my district, met with him and his uh, legislative aide, explained the problem, showed them the SEC no action letter, um, showed them uh, that, that the... Uh, states were working on a model state rule and that Florida being uh, one of the most populous states, having the uh, oldest tradition of business brokerage, really needed to be on the leading edge of, of uh, being in compliance with where the law was going. And uh, the legislature only meets for a couple of months. So they, uh, before the legislature meets, they do all of their homework and get the bills ready. And then they breeze through it all with hearings and votes during the term of the legislation, and it really got done in one calendar year. I I was really impressed at the efficiency of uh, of state legislatures and of the uh, focus on doing what was right for their constituents. When we worked with the federal, it was frustrating that they were more concerned with uh, sound bites and and doing something that was going to show up in the press that had and that our problem was too small for most of them to work on. So I, I trust that you will find a much more, a much warmer reception as you reach out to your own state representatives and state uh, legislature and, and regulatory agency. Yeah. 
Well, Mike, if that's not representative of all kinds of issues, I don't know what is, (laughs) but I will say I'll wrap us up. One, thank you both for all the work you've done. Thank you for being here today. And then just to our listeners one more time, if you're a broker, you're an intermediary, um, honestly, if you're a small business owner or someone who serves small business, this law is really allowing to continue the thriving Main Street and mineral markets that have been developed over the years. So please continue uh, consider supporting Beef, even if it's a small contribution. We will drop all of those links into the show notes so they're easy to find. Thank you both again. Thank you, guys. Our pleasure. It's been Thank a pleasure. You. Hey, Andy, do you know what time it is? It's time for our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Sold. Welcome back, everybody. It is deal of the week, and we are with the Mike Shea from Transworld Business Brokers of Florida, and he has another good deal, selling lots of deals here, and uh, you have another one that sold pretty quickly, right? Yeah, I did this one in under a week. So I uh, was out on a networking appointment or at a networking meeting, and a realtor said, hey, I knew this place is trying to sell. I had reached out to the seller. He said, hey, I already got a broker. About two months later, um, the sell, that same seller calls me up and says, hey, can you come see me? I go, <clears throat> go in and see him. And uh, he had been listed with a competitor for a year. And he was complaining of no action. So I you know, won't, won't kind of go into why there was no action, but it came down to exposure issues. Um, so he fired that broker, hired me. The evening I'm posting the listing, I, I had posted some social media. I get a phone call off the social media post while I'm activating the listing. Three days later, the deal was under contract. We sold it in 30 days for 110 grand. What was really cool about this was the buyer had had frustrations trying to find something. The seller had frustrations with trying to sell something. Um, they They... Followed the process to a T. We're appreciative on our over-communication. Um, great deal. They'd always wanted to have a deli. It's a deli right on St. Pete, uh, right across one of the causeways. Uh, by the way, great meatloaf sandwiches at JJ's Market. Um, there you go. And uh, they are thriving and killing it in um, St. Pete. Sounds like a tasty deal, quick, uh, easy meatloaf sandwiches. I could go for one of those right now. I could too, right? And I already ate lunch, but I'm too good. Anyway, so uh, great. Sounds like a great deal. If somebody else wants to get in touch with you and really sell their deal, Uh, 321-287-0349 or shoot me an email at mike at tworld.com. I think if you Google me, something will pop up. Exactly. Um, and uh, we will get you on your way. Excellent. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate this one. This is a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for Listing of the Week. Hey, welcome back, everybody. And we have Matt Nicoletti from Transworld Business Advisors of Central Florida. He's actually on the Treasure Coast in the Bureau Beach area. Yes, sir. And you have a really nice uh, new listing. I do. I have a really nice uh, fine wine retail store uh, in Indian River County. Um, really nice uh, location on the beach. Got about $165,000 in inventory included with the deal. Got it listed at $240,000, asking uh, $100,000 down. Yeah, uh, and these these don't come up a lot for sale, these wine bars and these little no, wine shops. So uh, it's, a, it's a very desirable business. And... Uh, your area of Florida is growing, growing. It's growing. It's grown quite a bit, and there's not a lot of competition in that industry. In this location. Yeah, so this is a really good deal for someone. And you said how much was it again? $240,000. $240,000. And uh, Matt, what's the best way to get in touch with you if somebody wants to learn more? Uh, best way in touch would be my email, uh, mnicoletti at tworld.com, or my phone number, 860-882-7228. And we'll throw that in the show notes just so you, uh, you don't know how to spell Nicoletti. Yes. We'll get that out there. <laughs> All right. Great job. Right, Thanks for tuning into the show today. If you like the podcast, share it with your friends on social media. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting app. If you have questions, would like to appear, or have suggestions for topics for the show, get in contact with us through our website, thedealboardpodcast.com. Mom, Dad, you should shop Amazon for back to school and save some money. 
See, I'm currently obsessed with superheroes and need all the superhero stuff. Superhero lunchbox, superhero backpack. But next year, it'll be something else. Maybe dinosaurs? I don't know. I'm not a fortune teller. But I can tell you not to spend a fortune and shop low prices for school on Amazon. Okay, good chat. Amazon. Spend less, smile more. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.